This is Radio Stockdale. Almost 50 years ago, hundreds of U.S. prisoners of war returned home from up to eight years of brutal captivity in North Vietnam. What brought them home? Extraordinary leadership and unflappable courage exhibited by the POW leaders in Vietnam and by their wives and families at home. I'm Michael Sears, and I'm in conversation with Alvin Townley, a senior fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. Alvin, welcome. Michael, thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here and to be part of uh, the Stockdale Center's efforts to recognize the leadership of the POWs and their wives, particularly during this special year, which, as we'll get to in a little bit, is the 50th anniversary of the POWs' homecoming. You know, you're absolutely right. We are getting into the start of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the return of those POWs when 142 of the 591 known prisoners were released. Can you set the stage for us by talking about the context of the Vietnam era with regard to the POWs? Well, I think the first thing I want to say about the Vietnam era is it started a lot earlier than people remember. And really, the United States was involved in Vietnam uh, really since the 1950s and the Eisenhower administration a little bit before that. And the Kennedy administration escalated our involvement significantly, and the Johnson administration escalated it the most. Um, and so really there was a 20 or, or more year period where the United States was very involved in Vietnam. And in the 1964, the U.S. military ramped up our involvement with its first airstrikes, and those precipitated the first prisoners of war. And so there was a period of about eight and a half years where there were U.S. servicemen, mostly aviators, who were held prisoners in prison camps in North Vietnam. So there are a lot of significant dates, you're right, from the 40s, 50s, really, all the way through the 70s. But can you tell us the significance of the date, February 12th, 1973? <laughs> For Bob Shoemaker, who is a class of 1956 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, eight years and one day of captivity. And so he was one of the longest serving POWs. And that day was the first time that American POWs began returning home from Vietnam. And it was an enormous operation, dubbed Operation Homecoming, that took place in Hanoi and North Vietnam, as well as South Vietnam, and was a huge return of hundreds of American prisoners of war. And for a country that had really been torn apart by opinions related to the Vietnam War and other things that were going on with society, America was terribly divided. People talk about America being divided now. It certainly is. But we have to think back to the early 70s and late 60s, and it was a very divided country, very polarized. And all of a sudden, America stopped, and they celebrated the return of the POWs. And there was this beautiful moment of national unity uh, where really for the first time, sadly, the American public stood up, cheered, and welcomed home Vietnam veterans. You know, you mentioned Admiral Shoemaker. Tell me how they were released, because that, that's a story in and of itself, isn't it? Well, it is. Well, they were released in order of shoot down, and uh, sort of the POWs began to suspect something was happening when um, things changed after the Christmas bombings in 1972. And uh, when they finally got the word they were going to be released, and, and remember, they had thought they were going to be released many, many times. So they were all very cynical about actually 
going home. But uh, the morning they lined up there in Wallow Prison, which everyone knows is the Hanoi Hilton in downtown Hanoi. And um, they were issued uh, khaki pants and button downs and jackets and shoes. And some of the POWs, by the way, had a very hard time walking in the shoes because they hadn't worn shoes in eight years. And uh, they got on uh, several buses and you know, rode through the streets of downtown Hanoi. It was really interesting because I think back and you know, the Vietnamese people had known there were these Americans locked up in their midst for a long time, but you know, the Vietnam War it was fading away in the early 70s. And so a lot of these POWs were just forgotten, I think, by the North Vietnamese and by some Americans too. But at one point, the POWs were certainly a focus of the citizens of Hanoi's anger. And I think when they rolled out on these buses, people were waving at them and they were almost a source of curiosity. So there was a, a very interesting shift in the Vietnamese perception there, but the Americans were certainly just uh, as lighthearted as you can imagine to be ending this ordeal and, and coming home. The POWs were released in order of captivity. And so among the first to be released and get on those beautiful C-141s uh, out of Hanoi were Rear Admiral Bob Shoemaker, Vice Admiral Jim Stockdale, Rear Admiral Jeremiah Denton, future U.S. Senator, Colonel Sam Johnson, uh, future U.S. Congressman, an extraordinary group of guys who really had spent, you know, seven, eight years uh, in captivity and had led uh, so many POWs through an ordeal that none of them imagined. You know, again, when they were shot down, they just had no idea how long they'd be there and certainly never imagined it would be up to eight years. There were about 591 POWs who came home. Of course, there were many more POWs, MIAs, missing in actions. Our own Vice Admiral James Stockdale, the namesake of the center, was one of them. He was one of the Alcatraz 11. Who are the Alcatraz 11, and what impact did they uniquely have? Well, the Alcatraz 11 were basically the 11 worst POWs in the Hanoi Hilton, as far as North Vietnamese were concerned. So you know, imagine, Michael, how bad you have to be to get thrown out of a POW camp. And that's exactly who the Alcatraz 11 were. That's exactly what happened to them, because they were such effective leaders and also just obnoxious and confounding to the North Vietnamese that they realized if they kept them at the Hanoi Hilton with everybody else, they could never accomplish any of their goals. So they actually threw these guys out in October of 1967 and sent them to this tiny little prison that was built by the French and it was built for the difficult political prisoners back in colonial times. And certainly the Alcatraz 11 or the difficult prisoners of the uh, American war period, as far as the North Vietnamese were concerned. And so they were locked away there in solitary cells and with very little contact, really no contact with the rest of the POW community. And they felt so isolated in that little prison that they nicknamed it Alcatraz. So I'm going to come back and talk about honor and leadership and the code of conduct in a second. But Tell me some of the other folks, not necessarily just the Alcatraz 11. There were a lot of folks there. Tell me tell me a story or two about the other, the other POWs. There was a range of uh, POWs, certainly. One of the most interesting to me was a guy named Doug Hegdell. And uh, Doug Hegdell is probably the youngest POW. I think he was maybe 19 years old. And he literally fell off a, uh, a surface ship in the Gulf of Tonkin, was picked up by the North Vietnamese and put in the Hanoi Hilton. So he was by far the youngest guy there, and he was a candidate for early release. Now, the POWs were very uh, adamant that no one would go home early, but they thought that Doug Hegdell might get sent home early, 
And so they used him in a unique way. They made him memorize the names of all the POWs in captivity. So he memorized hundreds of people to the tune of old McDonald. So if you, if uh, I've seen interviews with him where he could still years later, you know, uh, seeing this jingle that sounded like old McDonald, but had all the names of the POWs. And when they debriefed him, they asked him to go slow because uh, he did get early release. They did send him home early. And uh, when they, debriefing that asked him to go slowly, but he couldn't, he could only remember it when he went quickly. And so uh, the uh, intelligence experts had to decode that, but that provided, you know, uh, really proof of life for the first time from a number of POWs. Cause remember the North Vietnamese were not telling the U S everyone they had in captivity. So there are a lot of families that for years didn't know that their loved ones were alive. You know, the first time I heard that story about, Doug Hegdahl, I remember thinking, how can a guy fall off a ship? That was before my youngster cruise way back a long time ago. I ended up being on a, on a small destroyer when we were actually doing gunnery practice. And it is amazing the noise, the smoke, the cordite smells, and the vibrations that those ships get. It is very easy if you're out on the deck when you're on a gun line to actually trip and fall and fall into the water. And that's what happened to uh, that sailor. Interesting story. Certainly everyone also knows that John McCain was a, a, a POW. And interestingly, John McCain was shot down in October of 1967, which is the same year that the Alcatraz 11 were actually kicked out of the Hanoi Hilton. And the North Vietnamese certainly knew who John McCain's father was. He was commander of the Pacific fleet. He had a, a, um, Senator McCain had an extraordinary legacy in the Navy. The North Vietnamese certainly wanted him to go home. And Regardless of your political feelings or uh, what you think about John McCain politically, I always come back to the fact that he had the opportunity to go home. He probably needed the medical treatment, to be honest, but he knew that the POW code was that we all go home together. And so he wouldn't go home. He stayed there. And so for me, you know, that certainly was always a, an admirable act of self-sacrifice. And that takes us to that leadership and ethics and code of conduct idea, the, the concept of returning with honor. And by the way, this Homecoming 50 is called Returned with Honor that really talks about the legacy of, of that statement and what those leaders and the others did. Why is the concept of return with honor so important? When I speak to groups, I always talk about return with honor as being the most brilliant vision statement ever created in any organization um, throughout history, as far as I know, because, you know, the POWs faced this interesting situation where they were not together. They were very isolated. And so the leaders knew they had to come up with a, uh, a vision, a driving vision that everyone could understand, everyone could learn, everyone could remember, and everyone could internalize to the degree that it would govern their actions. And what Return with Honor did was allow every POW to understand that when he was in an interrogation room by himself with no accountability, he had to conduct himself in a way that would allow him to walk off an aircraft at some undisclosed date back home in the United States with his head held high so he could be proud of the job he did in Vietnam and, again, hold his head high there in front of his family and his friends and his fellow servicemen. And so that was extremely powerful because it was just such a unique situation where, um, you know, if you were in a, a tricky bind and you were getting pressure from your captors, you couldn't ask a superior exactly what to do in that situation. You had to figure it out. So that was a, a tremendously powerful 
uh, guide for people. And it was certainly a motivator because it kept them focused on returning home. You know, Stockdale and Denton and the other leaders of the POWs never let the prisoners think of themselves as victims or really think of themselves as prisoners. They were always American fighting men and they were on a mission. It just happened to be a mission that was a lot longer and a lot harder than they ever thought it was going to be. But no one ever thought of themselves as a victim. So they were able to stick together and I think mentally uh, survive this ordeal because they never stopped fighting. One of the reasons that Return with Honor was such an important uh, vision statement was because the POWs found themselves in a situation where it was very difficult to apply on a practical daily basis the U.S. military's code of conduct. And so uh, Return with Honor, um, along with several other leadership edicts that they created, uh, really helped POWs figure out exactly how they should behave in this particular, frank, frankly, very bizarre and unexpected situation. You know, part of the things we're going to be doing over this run up to uh, next January, February was talking about that leadership tradition, talking about the code of conduct, talking a little bit about uh, the Stockdale paradox. We've already covered that once in the podcast series here. We'll cover it again. Let me let me shift your focus a little bit because the an integral part of the story is actually on the home front with wives and children of the families of the POWs. Why is that such an important part of the story? At first, they played a very traditional role um, of you know, a family that hears, hears bad news about a, um, a husband or a brother or a son, and they uh, do their best to, to get through the uncertainty and come together as a family. Interestingly, though, they couldn't talk about it officially. So when they got the news that their um, love would have been shot down, they also got a second message, which was keep quiet. And actually the wives call this the keep quiet rule. And the military basically did not want them talking to the press or anybody else under the guise that anything they said about their husbands could be helpful to the North Vietnamese. And uh, I don't think that was necessarily a, a good policy for them to have, but the wives quickly got tired of it, as you can, as you can certainly imagine, and realized that nothing was really happening uh, diplomatically to get the POWs back home. And so they, they finally realized that if they were getting their, their husbands and brothers and sons home, it was going to be up to them. And really the, some of the wives, I think really took the, took the reins here and uh, Sybil Stockdale on the West coast and Jane Denton and Louise Mulligan on the East coast. And I'm leaving out a lot of people. Certainly they got together to um, rally the wives and begin to lobby Washington um, in the Department of Defense and the uh, administration. And at, at one point, Louise Mulligan was in Henry Kissinger's office banging on his desk. And they really fought hard uh, to get their husbands home. Interestingly, the black and white POW MIA flag and the uh, those nickel bracelets that people wore, uh, there are millions and millions of those bracelets made uh, with POW names on them or MIA names on them. And those all became symbols of this National League of POW MIA families, which is what uh, this movement ultimately became. So, Alvin, you've written a few books on the POW experience in Navy Air, and I commend those books to our listeners. There's excellent books on those subjects. What got you interested in these areas? Well, my first introduction to naval aviation came aboard the USS Yorktown uh, CV-10 there in Charleston Harbor, which I think um, many people have probably seen or, or been on. And my uncle actually had sailed on the Yorktown. So he used to bring me there during the summers. And, um, you know, I remember uh, the great, great names from that. Um, E.T. Smokey Stover and J.J. Jocko Clark and some of the great uh, leaders on that ship. And 
I didn't realize it at the time, but the planes that I was looking at on that ship had names I would eventually know very well. There's a plane with Jim Stockdale's name. There's a plane with Rear Admiral Jeremiah Denton's name. There's a plane with Bob Shoemaker's name, uh, all there on the uh, on the Yorktown. And so that sparked an interest. And then I think like every other um, every every other guy my age in America, I saw Top Gun and you know was certainly fascinated by naval aviation. And that was always an interest of mine. And I wrote a couple books. And the very first book I wrote, uh, I met uh, George Coker who was uh, a member of the Alcatraz 11, but he didn't tell me about that at the time. Uh, the very first book I wrote was actually about Eagle Scouts and uh, George Coker, as well as Jim Mulligan from the Alcatraz 11, were both Eagle Scouts. I came back to Commander Coker when I was writing my book, Fly Navy, which is my third book. And it really it was really a, a civilian's perspective on naval aviation. And I spent a year with the Navy all around the world and was very impressed with what uh, a citizenship factory the Navy is and how it really produces citizens, whether those are enlisted folks or, or commissioned officers, uh, it just has a wonderful effect on, on developing people, which is a tremendous gift to uh, America at large. But anyway, I went back to see Commander Coker and interview him about this book. And in the course of our conversation, he mentioned the Alcatraz 11. I said, well, you know, what's, what's that? And he said, uh, I never told you. I said, no, sir. And he said, well, let me tell you the story. And he did. And when he told me that, I realized what well, that is a story that America needs to hear. And that ended up becoming my fourth book, Defiant. You know, we are very proud at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership to have you as a senior fellow. What do you think you're going to be doing here this year? What's your intention? Well, um, I'm thrilled to be a part of the Stockdale Center, the Naval Academy. First of all, it's a great, uh, it's a great honor. It's exciting, and particularly in this year where uh, you know we have Top Gun Maverick out, uh, the film Devotions coming out. Uh, we have the 50th anniversary of the POW Homecoming, uh, and uh, winter of 2023. So it's a big year for naval aviation and the homecoming of the POWs, homecoming 50, I think, as we're calling it at the moment, uh, is the uh, principal reason I'm back here. So I want to make sure that we do a good job as a, um, as a country. And I think the starts at the academy is no better place to start it, uh, doing a good job of honoring these POWs and celebrating what they did and celebrating what their wives did and also looking at what that tells us today, what that teaches us today, what lessons we can derive from that experience, which is so unique. But again, it was 50 years ago. So how do we look back and uh, distill lessons from that that we can apply today and uh, make our leaders better and make our country better? Homecoming 50 returned with honor. It sounds like it's in the past tense, but as you said earlier, you know, 50 years ago, the country was pretty well divided on on not just the war, but many other things, not very different than it is today. So hopefully what we can do with Homecoming 50, Returned with Honor, is start putting the pieces in place to honor the legacy of those POWs, their, their wives and the families, to talk about leadership, to talk about the code of conduct, to talk about all the things necessary for young naval officers and young citizens going forward. So there'll be a series of events starting with this podcast and going to a lecture you're going to give in September of this year and other lectures and series and panel discussions and many other podcasts and that kind of stuff. So we've got a pretty pretty rich stack of things to do going forward. I'm going to look forward, Alvin, to continue to work with you both on air or on podcasts and in other events here at the Naval Academy. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 